0: in uh in one comment on going to uh, Uganda if you are at all thinking about it i know that as we contemplated this even as a missions committee your global outreach committee uh one of the things that has been stated along the way is that that it's a it's a more expensive trip than going to mexico as we've been doing and there's been doubt about whether we can can we raise enough money to send a team to to Uganda. It's, it's a big deal. We're talking about building and moving, you know, it's, it's, it's this whole season and, and can we do it? Well, since we've started talking about it just a few weeks ago, I've had three different people say uh, that I can't go, but I would like to pay the full amount for somebody else to go. So if we send a team of six people, we've already, before we've raised one penny, before we even know who they are or sent one letter, uh, have funded half the team already. And I believe, you know, it's one of those things, I was reading this week, you know, if it's, you know, if it's God's deal, if it's God's will, it's his bill, and, and he'll pay for it, like, he'll do it. And uh, we, we believe that God is moving us, this is a year, we're going to go to Uganda. And I real feel, really feel like God is saying, yes, we are. Um, yes, we are. So if you're thinking about it, come today, and at least learn some more about it, let us get your name, and we can c- continue that dialogue. This morning, we are continuing in Isaiah chapter 9. We were here last week, and uh, we'll be here next week, and we're going to come out of it as a rich text where we get this picture of this one who was born on Christmas. We're in Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. Hear then the word of God. For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of his peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom he shall reign to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore it is the zeal of of Yahweh, of the Lord of hosts, who will do this. Pray with me. Father in heaven, as we approach Christmas, as we walk through this Advent season, remembering and celebrating the gift you have given us in your son, Jesus Christ, we come again to sit at your feet and to hear you speak into our lives and into this season about the glory of your son and of what you have done. Father, come near this morning. We ask and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, as we spent time in this this passage, we focused on uh, this son who is born and this child who is given, or the child who is given and this son who is born as the promised king. We saw and noticed in here that it talked about the the increase of his government and of its peace, there will be no end. And the government will be on his shoulders, and he is going to reign in righteousness. The one who is coming is a king. He is the Lord and we saw how the New Testament and all the New Testament authors in multiple places ascribe this passage in saying this is about Jesus. And so the New Testament writers as they read it already have told us this is who it's about. This is the one who is coming, the son of David who would establish his kingdom. The kingdom that is already and not yet. And we talked about that in Jesus' first coming in the birth of this king. Um, behold our newborn King. The King has come. He began healing and He began preaching that the kingdom is in your midst. And the kingdom is come. And, and it is by the finger of God in this kingdom that He is cleansing lives and delivering people and working the works that He did, the wonders that He did. The kingdom has come. And we said, but it's, it's already, it started in the coming of Jesus. But it's not yet. Meaning that Jesus has has in this in-between time before his first coming as a child in humility that the day is coming where he will come again in power and in glory. And on that day the kingdom will come in its fullness. And in the meantime, you and I are those who seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. It is you and I then who participate. In this coming, the foretastes of the kingdom, this breaking in of the kingdom as it breaks into our lives and in the sphere of our influence as we know and love and talk about Jesus. The kingdom has come and it is coming and it's come in our lives and continues to come and and the king will return. But as we look again at the text, the text tells us that that he is this coming king, the promised king and that he is coming again. But... We look again and we see, if we look at the context here, the, this Old Testament setting, as the prophet speaks about the coming one, we said the problem that is, is in the context that he's still in this darkness of verse 2, right? The people who walked in darkness, those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, that he, they're coming out of a time of a really bad kingship. You know, as we see, one of the problems with the kings of the Old Testament is that there was, there was no consistency. The kingship was a really smattering of... of, In fact, if you read through in terms of the ones that are commended, and he did what was right in the eyes of God, they were few and far between. There were many more who did not do what was right in the eyes of God and who led God's people into great sin. And so you know that Isaiah, the book of Isaiah opens up with the whole, uh, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And you have that grand passage in Isaiah 6. The King Uzziah was a 40-year, a which is a really long reign for a monarch, 40-year reign of a godly king. And in Isaiah's tenure, in the year King Uzziah died, is when he was called. He comes in right at the end of this, the golden age, so to speak. And they had a couple of mediocre kings. And then leading up to this prophecy, 20 years of a really bad, godless king. Some would say one of the worst kings Israel ever had. They come and they go. They're really inconsistent. But one of the marks as we read this text is Isaiah is... Standing at the end of this terrible reign, and Israel is at a low where the people who are walking in spiritual darkness under all of this, he says, something is going to change. One of the marks of the coming kingdom as he looks into the future is simply this that it will never end. The government will be upon his shoulder, and his name is going to be called this wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, of the increase of his government, of its peace, there will be no end. How can this child, who will be given by God, reign over an eternal kingdom? How will he fix what's wrong with Israel's monarchy? The inconsistency the rising and the falling, the heights and the depths. How is this child who is going to be born and be given to us going to reign over an eternal kingdom? And so again, we're confronted with the question of what child is this? Whose kingdom will never end. Who will reign into eternity. And we're given this fourfold name and I believe that it gives us the answer and the New Testament picks up on it and Isaiah picks up on it elsewhere. But we see it in verse 6 when he says unto us a child is born and a child, a son is given. Not only is the government going to be on his shoulder, but he's going to be called. This is his name. This is his fourfold name. This is what they're going to call him. Wonderful counselor. Mighty God. Right? Everlasting father. And the prince of peace. That's quite a name. Right? That's quite a name. Right? And it reveals to us something of the answering that question, what child is this? This is no ordinary child, this is no ordinary event that, that Isaiah is looking forward to. And next week we're going to touch on Prince of Peace. As we enter into the week of Christmas, we're going to come back to Prince of Peace. But let's touch on some of these other names, and as he says, that he is going to be a wonderful counselor. In, uh, as you look at the language, I'm reading the, the, the commentators, and they all say that the, the wonderful doesn't quite capture it. It's almost something like he's going to be a supernatural counselor. It's going to be wonderful. He's going to be almost a divine counselor. He will have divine wisdom. So he will be the perfect, wise king. And he will be the everlasting father, father of eternity. And you put those two together again. How can it be a king who reigns forever? Well, how can it be a, an eternal father? How can he pull this off? And it connects very powerfully with the name that I want to really talk through this morning. The most startling of the names that are in the list. That this king who is coming, who is going to reign as a king on David's throne over a kingdom of righteousness and peace, and he's going to reign there forever, this perfect counselor and everlasting father is going to be, he says, Mighty God. Mighty God. He says, that's who's coming. Your king isn't going to be just any king. But God is going to come and reign. God is going to establish His throne. This divinely wise, eternal Father, the author of life, is none other than the mighty God Himself. And this is the the message of Christmas, and it's the message of Scripture. We were just seeing, I just noticed how many of the songs that we just sang, You know, speak this message, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate, in flesh, deity, the mighty God. Right? And that's the message of Christmas. That's the proclamation that that comes out of the scripture. In in Isaiah, you know, it's really clear as he says this in um, Isaiah chapter 7. Verse 14, another really famous Christmas verse that we come to as we we wrestle with these things and unpack their meaning. Isaiah 7, 14, it's there in your bulletin. It says, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And all of us know that when the angel comes to Mary, and and the angel comes and announces, what's about to happen, this whole mystery of of being with child uh, miraculously, that the power of God is going to overshadow you, that God is doing something here that is is beyond the norm. And and as he announced what God is doing, he, he tells her his name will be called Emmanuel. Right? Isaiah 7. Isaiah 6. His name will be called Emmanuel, and you see El at the end there. L is the Hebrew word for God. He will be called God who is with us. God with us. That will be his name. He will be called Mighty God who is our king, the son who is born, the child who is given. And so we tread here into the great mystery of Christmas. We tread into the great mystery of who God is and what he does, into the mystery of what the church is called the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, that the Son who is born and the Son who is given is none other than the mighty God himself. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead we see. And so Christmas is nothing less and nothing more than the eternal, invisible God becoming a human being in the person of Christ and in this child that is born. And so in John chapter 1, those enigmatic verses that we all know so well, it's there in your bulletin, John 1, 1 and 14, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All right, so who is this Word? Just like, what child is this? What Word is this? It was with God in the beginning, and who is God? And then we're told in verse 14, and then the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. You know, or it's, The word is he cast his tent, like he set up house. Right? So the word who was with God and who was God became flesh and he dwelt among us, veiled in flesh. The Godhead see, the word of God became flesh. It would take a whole series of sermons to show all the ways that the Bible teaches and reveals the deity of Christ. And one of the things that you do here out there in this time of the season, but in general, is wrestling with that whole idea of how Jesus could be God. And whether Jesus ever thinks he's God and says he's God, or whether the writers of the New Testament think he's God. And, and, you know, there's this whole thing. Does he really, does it really say he's God? Does he really think he's God? Because that's crazy talk. I mean, it's not normal. It's not unusual. I mean, it's a once in the history of an entire world kind of a thing that we're talking about. And if it happens, it is the work of a mighty God. An invasion. Something amazing, Wonderful. But let's, it would take several sermons at least to walk through some of these texts. I'm just going to bunch them together at the risk of, you know, <clears throat> of being tedious, and we'll just run through a few of these. Where Jesus says things like in John chapter 8, there in your bulletin, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And he deliberately, Jesus was pretty good with his grammar. You know he he pretty he's he's pretty good in the you, all the recorded things that he says he didn't he you know he, he was pretty good on these verb tenses and that kind of thing, uh, and here when he says before Abraham was I am there is a deliberate misuse in a sense of the the verb form, you know you were to say before Abraham was I was you know or I was long you know there's past tense but he says in the in the in, in the first person present, which you and I know, or most of us would know, is God's name. In the Old Testament, the name Jehovah or Yahweh, um, however you transliterate the Hebrew, simply means that God is, I am. I am who I am. Uh, that's his name. And when Jesus says, before Abraham was, in the Greek, ego eimi, I am, it's startling. And some would say, well, you're just, you know, Jesus, you know, he meant something. It's hard to understand what he was trying to say. We really don't. Well, the Jews got it because the very next verse, I put it there. So they picked up stones to throw at him, right? They knew he was saying something that they, that he, that they didn't think he should be saying. They, they, knew he, they, they thought he was saying something worthy of death. We are going to throw stones at you until you are dead because you just said that. And what they accused him of more than anything else was blasphemy. Because he equated himself with God. There it is in John 15, the next verse in your bulletin. The Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Well, why? Why did they hate Jesus so much? Because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, which is bad enough, <laughs> but he was even calling God his own father, i.e. he is the son who is born, the child who is given. Right? He's calling God his own father, and he's making himself equal to God. Like, this is very clear to his contemporaries that they want to stone him and to kill him for blasphemy because he thinks he's the son of God. And they know Old Testament context, the son of God is the Messiah. He thinks he's the son of God and he keeps making himself equal to God. And we want to kill him for it because they didn't believe that he was who he said he was. And then he says things like, if you don't believe I am who I say I am, you're going to die in your sins. They understood who he was saying he was and they didn't like it. He says impossible things. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I am the bread of life. If you feast on me, you will never die, but you will live. Right? I am the light of the world. If you, if you follow me, you will never walk in darkness. No one comes to the Father unless he comes through me. Jesus, C.S. Lewis said, when you read Jesus, you come away reading his sayings. Just read the Gospel of John by itself or read all four of them together in a sitting and see all the things Jesus says about himself. And he says, you come away, he is either the Lord who he says he is or he is a liar or he is a lunatic, right? He says the option that he's a good man or a good teacher or, you know, whatever else, he says he doesn't leave that option open to us because he says crazy things. He is crazy talk. He has this inflated sense of who he is. When he says things like that, before Abraham was, I am. And I am the light of the world. And if you don't believe in me, you will walk in darkness. If you don't accept me, if you don't love me, if you don't come to me, no one comes to the Father except they come through me. Now, either he is lying, which makes him a bad man, or he is crazy. And he has this delusions of grandeur. Or he is who he said he was. But he doesn't leave open the option of Jesus is a great moral teacher or a religious man. He was either nuts or he is the Lord. He is who he said he was. Colossians 1.15, we just read it together. I didn't know we were going to do that, but there it is. Colossians 1, is Paul is writing about him, he says he is the image of the physical manifestation or the moral spiritual manifestation in a body, the the deity in flesh. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of creation, for by him all things are created. Paul says that all things are created by Jesus, the word of God. For in him all the fullness of the deity was pleased to dwell. The fullness of God is in Christ, the one who created the world, without whom nothing was made that was made, is is in this person we call Jesus, the invisible God made visible. One one of the places, another. Let me give you just one more here in Isaiah 45:23. That's one that strikes me because if you read Isaiah 45, it is a very powerful passage. It's a place where there are times in the in the Old Testament prophets, and we're still in Isaiah. All these where God is really strong about who he is and his glory, and he will not share it with another. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I am God, and he goes on this, this you know, expansive explanation and, and statement of who he is. And this is one of them. In Isaiah 45, as you read it, and he says, So by myself I have sworn, by the uncreated eternal deity I have sworn, There's no greater by which to swear. And from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. And that means when it says it will not return, meaning it will accomplish what it was meant to accomplish. It's effective. It doesn't return void. It says elsewhere we translate. You know, so out goes a word that will will happen. It will be established. It will be done because God said it would be done. And he swore by his own eternal nature that it would be so. And what is it that he said would be done? To me. Yahweh, Lord of hosts, every knee will bow and every tongue shall swear their allegiance to me. By my own name, I have sworn it will be to no other. By By eternal deity, I have said this word will be accomplished. God says every knee will bow to me. Every tongue will confess me because I am the only true and living God that there is. We all know that in Ephesians, I mean Philippians chapter 2, it's there in your bulletin, and Paul in his great pantheon of praise in Philippians 2, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Whether in heaven or on earth, every knee that there is, spiritual or unspiritual, in the earth, above the earth, in heaven, wherever it is, every knee that's ever been created and bends at that joint will bow to Jesus. And every tongue will confess that he, This Jesus is Kurios, is Lord, the Lord. Obviously, Paul thinks, because God has said, and Paul is is a Jewish scholar. No knee is going to bow to anyone except Yahweh, right? The word that will be fulfilled, it will be fulfilled at the feet of God Almighty. And then Paul takes it and says, Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be hung on to, but he was willing to empty himself and to, and to take on the form of a servant, to be born in human flesh, to take on human likeness, and even to die on a cross so that at the name of Jesus, God incarnate, every knee would bow. This text in Isaiah 45 would be fulfilled when everybody bows to Jesus. Hebrews 1, in the last days, he has spoken to us in his son who appointed the heir of all things, the king who would reign over all things, through whom he also created the world. This son is the creator from beginning of, of time, through whom he created the world. He's the radiance of God's glory, and God says, I will share my glory with no one. I will not give my glory to another. And yet Jesus is the very radiance of his glory, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He he is the heir of all things. He's created all things, and he upholds all things in the word of his power, in the radiance of a shared glory with God. And after making this very one, making purification for our sins in the flesh that he took for us, he sits down at the right hand of the majesty, which is on high, and then he ends up by saying, it again, he brings the firstborn into the world. The son is given. He's, he's not just born, he is sent. He comes into the world and he says, let all the angels worship him. God says, let all the angels worship him. God says, I share my glory with no one. You worship me and me alone. It's not enough even to say that God sent Jesus Christ into the world for us we must say God came to us in Jesus the fullness of deity in the flesh he shared our struggles he shared our weaknesses God himself was tempted in all ways like we are and yet he was without sin and he shared even in our death T.F. Torrance says there in your bulletin Jesus is not a man becoming God but God becoming man God incarnate Descending into the flesh, coming into it from the outside, from above, in order to be one of us, in order to be with us, taking our nature, entering our suffering. And then when you start thinking of that, you start, you start with that whole visor on that Jesus is the Lord Almighty, and you start looking at His life and what He did and what He suffered and who He was when he took off, I always, when I read John 13, it says that he stripped down and he took off his outer garments and, and he got down on his hands and knees and he washed the feet of the disciples. And you think, oh my God. How can this be? And yet that is but a picture of the cross where he comes to save. We're told, Second Corinthians 8 9, under your last point. That you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, though he was in the form of God, though he shares his glory, though he created the world, though he upholds all things by the word of his power, though he was rich in the presence of God, he became poor for your sake. So that by his poverty, we might become rich. He suffered for our sins once and for all the righteous, for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. The question as we come to Christmas is, what child is this? Have I seen Him? Do I know Him? Have I recognized Him for who He is? Have we bowed the knee to Him as as God has said that that this, this verse will be in the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that He is the Kurios, that He is the Lord to the glory and praise of God the Father. Have you bowed your knee, put your faith in Christ, believing that what He did on the cross, that what He did in being born in a manger, living the life that we failed to live, and what He did on the cross, do you believe that, that He did that for you? Christmas is the perfect time to bow the knee to let Jesus bring us to God. Because we know that the coming of God and the person of Christ has changed the world forever. At Christmas, the mighty God came to be with us. And there's a whole another sermon to be preached here. And understanding what it means that God has come to be with us. To share in our suffering. To be with us in our weakness. To understand us. We're told at another place that he suffered in all ways like as we are. So that he could be a faithful high priest to comfort us and encourage us and strengthen us that we can come to the throne of grace in our time of need and find help from a God who knows us and our weakness he knows our frame that we are but dust and he has shared that very dust the gift that God gave on Christmas is none other than himself Christmas is about God giving himself to the world so that he could give himself for the world on the cross. This one who gave himself for us on Christmas will give himself to you when we put our faith in Christ. When we put our faith in Christ, he becomes that supernatural counselor, that divine counselor who will walk with us and help us and guide us and speak the truth into our lives. He will be that everlasting father who loves us and cares for us and who gives us eternal life who never leaves us or forsakes us he is the mighty God whose power is exerted not only to save us but to keep us and to cast away all fear and to give us a hope and a future and be a rock of confidence you don't need to be afraid to come you don't need to be afraid to come because he has already come to you he has already come for us he came to get us we don't need to be afraid to come. Hebrews 10.22, it's there in your and He says, let us draw near with a true heart and the full assurance of faith. Because Jesus has come. God has come to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. You see, you and I have a debt that we cannot pay. You and I have a guilt that we cannot escape. You and I have sin that we cannot atone for. And so God has come and He has done for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And that He bore our debt. He paid our debt. He covered our sin. He died the death that we deserve to die. And then He says, come to me. You don't need to be afraid to come to me. If you find yourself needing all of that, He says, you don't have to be afraid to come because I have already come to you. Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest For your souls. This is a trustworthy and deserving saying. Of full acceptance. That Christ came into the world. To save people like you and me. This morning. If that is you in the category of. Needing a savior. Needing someone to cover your sin. To pay for your guilt. And to save you. Then the good news is this. Jesus is God with us for the very purpose to save. If you will put your faith and your trust in Him, He will be Emmanuel. He will be God with you. Pray with me. Fathers, we come this morning in the celebration of Christmas. It's so easy to get lost in so many of the busyness, so much of the busyness, so many of the events, so... Uh, many of the messages that are put forth and so much that goes on in the midst of it all. The gift that you have given is yourself. Father, I pray this morning that you would open our eyes and hearts to see in the Christ who was born in a manger, a God who loves us, a God who does, does not leave us as he finds us, but who comes to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Let us indeed, every knee bow. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, and that we might give our lives to him in faith, not just this season, but that we might follow him all our days. We ask, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.